This is Our American Stories, and we hear a lot about drugs in the news. But what we never hear about is how these drugs get made. The blood, the sweat, the tears that go into them. All the scientists, all the dollars, all the tests, and more tests. And all that goes into the making of these drugs before they ever get into the bloodstream of patients. But now we bring you one story, the true story of one doctor turned entrepreneur. We discovered this story on the pages of the Wall Street Journal and his incredible fight to get a life-saving drug into the hands of patients. Cancer is the second biggest killer of Americans. And you often can't see it coming. Sometimes you don't even notice as it eats away at your body. The best you can do is hope that your doctor identifies it early. And if you don't detect the cancer early enough, it might spread from just a few cells on one organ to the whole organ or to lymph nodes or even other organs. Bladder cancer is no different and the number of Americans it attacks is staggering. About 75,000 new cases of bladder cancer occur every year and over half a million people are walking around um, with bladder cancer. The cancer first attacks just the outer layer of your bladder. It's called superficial bladder cancer. Okay, the the average age of someone diagnosed with bladder cancer is 73. Most cases of bladder cancer are superficial. And if you can cure them, they won't progress to advanced disease and kill the patient, right? So there are 16,000 deaths from bladder cancer in the U.S. So the trick is, if you can catch them early, if most of those 75,000 per year, most of those cases are are early stage, if you can catch them early and treat them effectively, you're going to cut down on that death rate. Luckily, there's a drug to treat superficial bladder cancer before it progresses to invasive bladder cancer. And it's remarkably effective. Even so, for two out of 10 patients, the drug will fail and they will still have cancer. And if you are one of those two, your only option used to be a cystectomy. If it progresses to invasive, you need to take out the patient's bladder. And living without a bladder is no duck walk. Taking someone's bladder out is a horrible thing. You know, they have to self-catheterize. Sometimes they try to, the doctors try to give what's called a neobladder. They make a, a small pouch of bladder from a piece of your bowel. And it's, it's, you know, you're prone to infections. You're, it's so, it's so, it's horrible. It's horrible for patients. And even at that, the patient will ultimately die of the bladder cancer. Um, because you, you, you know, it's very hard to get everything. But what if cutting out your bladder wasn't the only thing a doctor could do? What if there was a miracle drug, one that could prevent you from living with a catheter for the rest of your life? And it would save your life. Wouldn't you want to try a drug like that? Well, that drug exists. It's called Valstar, and bladder cancer patients have been hearing its name for over a decade now. But Valstar almost never made it into the hands of patients at all. And it wasn't because it was too expensive. This is the story of one small pharmaceutical company and their fight to save the lives of bladder cancer patients. Their story is so incredible that you have to hear it from the horse's mouth. The voice you've been listening to is Dr. Joseph Golfo, who is the chief operating officer of the company that created Valstar. 
Anthra Pharmaceuticals. And we start his story and how he came to Anthra. The VCs, the venture capitalists, the big money guys who had backed Anthra knew that they had a great drug, but they were having problems getting that drug to the market. So Anthra was a company that was founded by the uh, Mervyn Israel. Mervyn was at uh, Harvard. And uh, when I showed up, it was basically a restart. The, um, the VCs um, did not like the way things were progressing. They really didn't have anyone in the company who um, had my kind of background. So they basically, they, I think they had up to 16 employees and they just restarted the company. Dr. Gofo already had a job he loved, but Anthra offered him his dream job. How do you turn down um, to go and be the number two guy at a venture-backed company? Um, you know, when, when here I wanted to, I was getting an MBA, and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to run these little biotech companies. Yet all too soon, Dr. Golfo learned the difficulties of running a small business. As it turns out, it's not as easy as it looks on TV. I now know why Jesus picked 12 apostles. When you have a little company, uh, just by force of will and your presence, walking around the halls, you can touch everyone enough, they can get a piece of you, they can understand, you know, know that you're honest and, and trustworthy and follow your lead. You know what happened? Then we hired the 13th employee and all hell broke loose. There's a magic number, <laughs> I'm saying it's 12 to 13, where one person just can't manage the group anymore. And it was, you know, I would do a lot of traveling. I'd go visit the clinical sites. I'd go visit various experts as we were moving this along, raising money, doing all this stuff. And when we only had 12 people, by the time I got back, whatever petty problems there were, people could just keep it under their hat and then come talk to me about it, and then I could solve the problem. But I will tell you, on the hire of the 13th employee, all hell broke loose. Unlike Jesus, though, Dr. Golfo could hire an HR manager to take on the extra help. And soon they ended up expanding to nearly 30 employees. And Dr. Golfo would need all of those colleagues for the trial that was to come, because it would be one of the most defining trials of his life. And it would all be to save the lives of patients he didn't even know. Dr. Golfo's challenges didn't stop at just putting together a great team of great scientists and marketers, you're going to hear about one of the hardest challenges of Dr. Golfo's career, and it nearly killed Valstar before it was ever able to help its first patient. That story, the rest of the story, after this break, this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with the incredible true story of one doctor 
his drug, and his quest to save lives. We just heard Dr. Joseph Golfo talk about how incredibly deadly bladder cancer can be and how his drug, Valstar, can save lives like no other drug can. Now listen as Dr. Golfo tells you not just how hard it is to make a drug, but how hard it is to get that drug approved by regulators. Because it's that challenge that determines not only his career, but those of his 30 employees and the lives of thousands of patients. Valstar's story, like every drug story, starts when a scientist, in this case Dr. Mervyn Israel, gives birth to a eureka moment. A birth that's the beginning of a very long life. Well, you know, once you decide, okay, let's, let's move them further, you have a lot of preclinical work to do, right? So first, you have to get them manufactured. Not easy. They have to be manufactured according to good, good manufacturing practices, which is expensive. Next, you have to do um, toxicology studies, right? So you have to do um, various uh, animals, mice, rats. Sometimes you have to do higher order animals like with bladder cancer and the bladder. You have to do dog studies because dogs have a, have, a, have a bladder much like humans in sensitivity. You then have to um, do all the uh, cancer testing, you know, it makes sense, susceptibility testing. If Valsar were a child, at the end of all that testing, he would be about to start kindergarten. Ha, 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 ha. Quiet. And he would still just be getting going. Thanks for the tip. Before the drug gets into the hands of doctors and the bodies of patients, it has to go through the Food and Drug Administration, better known as the FDA, the government agency that assesses the drug's safety and effectiveness based on clinical trials, which can take anywhere from one year to eight, with an average of four or five. And those trials have to prove safety and effectiveness through what's called a claim, which means that the drug achieves the results it claims to. Determining what that claim will be and what those clinical trials will measure and how it will measure them and who will measure them and how the measurements will be measured all starts with a relationship with the FDA. The FDA and the company have a meeting, and if they can agree on the claim and the trials, the company should be set up for a smooth approval process. We had a fantastic relationship with the FDA. We were doing everything they asked us to do. We had a letter agreement. A letter agreement is when you meet with the agency and you exchange meeting minutes, our version of what happened at the meeting, the FDA's version of what happened at the meeting, and you work out any differences, and then the FDA would write you a letter saying, okay, based on our meetings, well, it is our understanding this is what you're doing, and, and the agreement is, okay, if you, if, you, if you have a complete response rate of 20% or greater, that would serve the basis of approval. So we went and did um, about 100 patient trial, like there were 93 patients to, at the end of the trial, and we proved that we had a, I think it was a 22% complete response rate. Think about that for a minute. A complete response is the cancer going away completely. That's pretty incredible for a drug. Testing that took years, four years actually. And Valsar would now be eight years old. And like any eight-year-old who can't support himself, someone has to nurture that child into the future. And that job fell to Dr. Golfo. At the end of all that nurturing, you present that child to the FDA's panel meeting for approval. Most, however, won't even make it there. Only one out of every 10 drugs will. Only one out of 10 will even be considered for approval. 
Doesn't that sound like a great industry to be in? But it's their dreams that drive them on. Dreams of driving health to new heights. All those years and all those millions come down to just one day before the FDA panelists, who didn't know it as a baby like Dr. Golfo did, will decide whether or not Valsar will be allowed to go out into the world. And so in preparation of the FDA panel meeting, Dr. Golfo tried to look at Valsar through their eyes. And he found inspiration in an old show. Put myself, like, remember there was a show called The Pretender. Um, I'm trying to pretend I'm a statistician and I'm going through the data the way I, I, I believe statisticians will. Next, I'm going to go through the data the way a medical oncologist will. Next, I'm going to go. And, and so this is what I did to myself. I put, basically put myself in, in the position of that person. And, you know, <laughs> even the way they breathe and eat, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I, just, I just immersed myself in those characters as I was going through the data the way they would. And, uh, and so I, I basically went through the data through, in five different ways. Dr. Golfo also studied the panel members, like lives depended on it. Because they did. I went to the prior six advisory committee meetings, and I watched them. I didn't just watch them. I studied them. I watched for all the nuance, all the way people's response, the way I was trying to predict body movements, like, you know, what, what this panel member, uh, what their body language says about the way they vote, about just, just, just studying FDA people. I just, I just studied it, just studied it. And so much so that the last one, now I'm getting nervous because, you know, ours is, ours is uh, coming close. The last one I went to, I got so close to the front of the room, you know, there's like a big U-shaped table. My right thigh was, was pushing on the corner of the table that so much so that I was irritating two panel members who kept giving me dirty looks because I was in their psychic spaces. It's like a, being on an airplane, right? I didn't give a damn. Something that's easier to say when you're in the audience, harder to say when you're the presenter before that panel, as Dr. Golfo universally noticed. Every company, doesn't matter who they are, Merck, BMS, doesn't matter, little companies, big companies, the people who present are afraid. And they get up there and they show their fear. They grab those, they grab that podium as if it's a shield. They could be afraid for many reasons. Maybe it's the fear of public speaking. But most of all, it might be the fear that the truth may not set them free. That despite all the compelling data in the world that's behind them, Despite Anthra meeting all the FDA's conditions for approval, he might still lose. Back in Valsar's time, 1998, the chance for approval just at that meeting was only 74%. Overall, only one of every 10,000 drug compounds that scientists create and test will go to market. One out of every 10,000. You have to care a whole heck of a lot to put up with those odds. But back to Dr. Golfo, no matter what, he was determined to show the FDA that he wasn't afraid of them. I am not going to use the podium. I'm going to stand in the middle of that U-shaped table. I'm going to look each one of them in the eye. I'm going to non-verbally communicate with them. You can't touch this. You know, I'm going to be MC Hammer, okay? There's just no way they can know this better than I, and I'm going to, I'm going to blow them away, okay? You can't touch this. You can't touch this. 
Although his team had something else to say about his podium idea. Can't touch this. So my team said to me, Joseph, we love everything you're saying except one thing. Please use the podium. <laughs> I said, all right, I'll use the damn podium, but I'm not going to be intimidated. The panel meeting he's here for is set up just like a criminal trial. Well, almost. Yeah, you have to understand, panel meetings are theater. They are criminal trials is what they are. What you have is you have a huge room, it's typically 500 people watching. You have the prosecution, which is the FDA. You have the judge, which is the FDA. Okay, so the FDA decides on procedure. They decide what's valid and not valid, and they are the prosecution. You have the jury, which is the advisory committee panel members, and you have the defendants, which is, <laughs> which, you know, which is the drug company. Just like any real trial, the defendant is judged by a jury of his peers. The defendant's peers in Valstar's case are urologists who treat the bladder. Those urologists can also be called to the stand as witnesses, or at least they're supposed to be able to. Though I asked them not to, the FDA scheduled the advisory committee during the American Urologic Association meeting. What's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is no urologist worth his or her salt, meaning anyone who publishes, okay, <laughs> is not going to be at the American Urologic Association meeting. That means that the FDA can't get urologic consultants and I can't get urologic consultants to come to my meeting. And when we come back from the break, you'll hear just what happened to Dr. Golfo and his team and what that meant not only for his company and for pharmaceuticals, but also thousands of patients in need around the country. When we read this story in the Wall Street Journal, it read like a thriller. And my goodness, the stakes are high. And he's going before that panel, those judges, that jury. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. The story of a drug, a drug company, and the battle to get that drug to market. our American stories and we're back with the amazing and true story of the bladder cancer drug Valstar and its life from inception in the laboratory to when it finally gets into the doctor's office or at least we hope that's how this story will end. In Washington regulators put drugs on trial in order to determine whether they get out into the world or not and as you are about to hear this trial is made for TV but isn't like one you've ever seen or heard before. The FDA was judging a disease that affects 70,000 people per year, but it ensured that no urologist would be able to make it for the trial. In a real trial, the defense would object and make sure that the witnesses could come. But this isn't a real trial. It's the FDA. So what can he do? What would Merck do in that situation? What they would do is they would pull their NDA. 
they would retract it. And they would, you know, talk to the analysts and say, well, heavens, we're not going to we're not going to put our drug for X, Y or Z before a panel where no one treats it. What would happen to their stock price? Nothing, <laughs> because they have 80 products on the market and four others coming up for review. You know, they know how to play the game. How about a little company running out of money? What are you going to say to investors who want to believe the story? Why did you pull your NDA? Oh, they're going to believe me, my version? Of course they're not going to believe me. So we had to go through with this. What if Dr. Golfo pulled his NDA, his new drug application? If little companies like Anthra started giving up on their drugs and pulling their applications for them, it would mean that more than half of all new drugs approved each year wouldn't exist. They just wouldn't exist. June 1st, 1998. It's now the morning of the trial. The day-long event will start in just hours. And Dr. Golfo has a horrible feeling. And I remember waking up that morning and just doing my final prep. And I started shaking. I mean, literally shaking. Because I saw on the laptop the two icons. The IPO Roadshow icon and the Advisory Committee uh, Slides icon. And it just hit me in that moment, right before I'm about to go up for the biggest thing in my life, how crazy this was. This is nuts. Being about to run out of money unless this is successful is crazy. And then I learned, no, that's biotech. Okay, that's biotech. And that wasn't the only thing weighing on his mind. Well, it was interesting, there were personal things going on too because my parents were not very happy with me because I wasn't seeing patients. I, I'm an MD, right? Trained, they paid for it. Um, and what did I do with this MD? I'm a paper pusher now. <laughs> I'm a finance guy now. I'm not really helping people. You help more people, by the way, in industry than you do seeing patients. You get drugs approved to treat billions of people, but nevertheless, they didn't want to hear that. So what I did was, you know, they weren't too pleased with me over the years. I called them up and I said, you want to see what I'm doing with my MD degree? You want to see? Why don't you come down to DC and watch your son go up against 12 of the smartest people in the country? You know, I kind of put it in their faces. And with that, they walked into the FDA's courtroom with all the bankers and financiers, employees and staffers, doctors and scientists, spectators, journalists, and his parents, all watching him. Dr. Gofo said a prayer. And then it began. Well, we, we go to the panel meeting and, um, you know, God was with me. I, I presented I, I, I gave a, a flawless presentation. Everything I wanted to do, I pulled off. It was clear, it was crisp. Panel members had maybe two or three questions. I handled them the way I should, and uh, I was really happy with myself. Dr. Golfo's prayer was answered, and his months of insane preparation had paid off. But now, it was the prosecution's turn. So then the FDA person gets up to, to present. And on slide three of his presentation, his boss had to interrupt and say, excuse me, panel, um, that number 37% really should be 45%. Okay, fine. A few other slides later, some other thing, some bulleted point about something, the boss interrupts the presenter, the FDA presenter says, excuse me, panel, um, we met on that, no, what really should say there is, but they put up, okay, fine. Twice now, the FDA had misrepresented facts to the panel. For whatever reason, the FDA, in charge of promoting and protecting our health, couldn't get their presentation straight. 
but they weren't done yet. And then the third time, you know, a few slides later, again, this is in front of 500 people. Panel, you know, the, the, te- the, the intensity in the room, the tension, okay? Third time, third time, the boss interrupts the presenter and says, well, I'm sorry to say, this is clearly a prior version of the slides. This slide shouldn't even be in the deck. So please ignore it. As if the FDA's prosecution wasn't shocking enough, Dr. Gulfo couldn't believe what happened next. So the, the panel chair says, will Dr. Gulfo come to the microphone? So there's two podiums there's, with the microphone, right? There's the defense podium, right? The company podium and the prosecution or FDA podium. So I go up to my podium and I don't know what's coming next. I, at all the panel meetings I ever went to, this never happened. So I, I'm, I'm nervous. And so the panel chair says, Dr. Gulfo, not that podium. So I walk around to the FDA podium and I get there again, you know, like, like, like a deer in the headlights. I'm just looking at, at the panel chair, uh, Barbara Dutcher was her name. And I'm looking at Dr. Dutcher and she looks at me, she says, Dr. Gulfo, we would like you to present FDA slides. So now I'm asked, I'm asked to present the case against the company, because that's really what it is, the prosecution. This was the first time anyone's ever heard of this happening at the FDA being asked to testify against yourself because the FDA is unable to do the job. When Dr. Golfo finished, again, the panel adjourned for lunch. So at lunchtime, the head FDA reviewer comes up to me, and again, I'm being, I'm, I'm being mauled. I got, I got people I don't even know of telling me how phenomenal this was. I got, I got investors, potential investors. I got VCs who are in the room who are current investors. I got bankers, I got lawyers. I'm just being inundated. I gotta go to the bathroom yet too, because I gotta <laughs> got present more. But anyway, so I get a tap on my shoulder and it's the head FDA reviewer. And he says, Joe, you have a minute? I said, do I have a minute? I said, you're God, okay? You're the FDA, do I have a minute? Of course I have a minute. So yeah, let's go. So we go over to the side and he says, um, he said, I got three things to tell you. He said, number one, that was a phenomenal presentation. Thank you. Number two, you're an honest guy. He says, you presented your bad equally to your good. He says, and we really like that. He says, and number three, he, he motioned me to get closer, whispers in my ear. You got it in the bag. The head judge and jury foreman basically told him that the afternoon session where the panel members would deliberate over the drug would be a formality. He was practically guaranteed approval. But there was a problem. The way an FDA's panel deliberation works isn't exactly the same as a real court trial. The problem is no one can say a word. Only FDA can say a word. The the, the defense can't say a word. So you're going to listen to their jury deliberations as they talk about X, Y, or Z. Then there's going to be a vote. So it's it's a trial, but it's, you know, it's, 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 it's a trial in Russia. Okay. This is, this is not a, uh, this is not, this is not American justice. After the break, you'll hear what the FDA's final verdict was. Would Valstar get to save lives of folks with bladder cancer? Or would it go into the trash? The final chapter of this amazing story. Next, this is Our American Stories, The Birth of a Drug. You're hearing the voice of Dr. Joseph Golfo, then COO of Anthra Pharmaceuticals. 
This is Our American Stories, and we're back with our final segment of the incredible true story of the life of the bladder cancer drug Valstar and the doctor-turned-entrepreneur, Joseph Golfo, who is fighting for Valstar's life. As we pick up, we're waiting with Dr. Golfo for the FDA to render their final verdict on this drug, and we're about to learn that regulators in Washington don't always make the right call, and the wrong call can have devastating effects on everyone. The panel meeting is called back to the courtroom for the final session, and then this. I can't say a word. The jury, the panel members, who don't treat the disease, start talking about the product. And at one point, one of these individuals slapped the table and he says, I don't care how good these data are. Complete response, again, which means totally eradicating the disease, complete response is the completely wrong endpoint for this disease. And I can't say a word. But complete response, total reversal of the disease, was the very endpoint that the FDA had agreed to for Valstar, regardless of whatever this doctor thought. And remember, the FDA had refused to schedule this panel meeting so urologists could attend. Urologists who actually treat the bladder and who would actually use the drug. But instead, the FDA invited this doctor, an oncologist, who didn't treat this kind of cancer and who wouldn't use this drug. And he believed it didn't matter if this drug is effective. And it didn't matter if this drug means that folks won't have to get their bladders removed. And that patients won't have to spend their life peeing into a bag. He had a different set of beliefs about how cancer treatments should be considered. He was saying that it doesn't matter if you completely eradicate the disease. What matters is, did the patient live longer, in his view? Now, that's not right. In, in bladder cancer, if you eradicate the disease and you stave off cystectomy, that's the gold standard. That's what you want. So, you know, he's an oncologist and he was talking about other diseases. And by the way, I don't even agree when it comes to other diseases, but this was a position that he wanted to advance. And beliefs, even bad ones, have real-world effects. So it was, it was the Johnny Cochran moment. When you have someone who speaks with authority and is a bit domineering and projects great personal authority, the others are lemmings. The others just follow. So what happened was they took the vote, 11 to 0 unanimous no. 11 to 0. Dr. Golfo went from having it in the bag to, with his one comment, losing it all. He was blown away and humiliated in front of his peers, co-workers, and maybe worst of all, his parents, who had come to watch him save lives and instead watched his career crash and burn before their very eyes. So Dr. Golfo does what any man would have done. He confronted the doctor that sabotaged the trial. I said, I said, what are you doing? And he said, well, you know, I... I wanted to make a very, very important point about the way about the way the Oncology Drug Advisory Committee really should look at um, cancer. I said, and you picked my meeting to make that point? Yes, this doctor chose the trial of a new drug to make a general policy point about the FDA. And worse, a very controversial policy point. 
But none of that mattered anymore. What was done was done. And now it was Dr. Golfo's time to get confronted. My parents come up to me and my father says to me, let me buy you a drink. And I said, I can't, I gotta get to the airport. I, can't, I, I gotta get to the airport. And uh, he said to me, I remember him getting very angry at me. He said, after what I just watched, where do you, could you possibly need to be? Dr. Golfo's response to his dad wasn't what he wanted to hear, but he had to say it. Just because he was a company executive didn't mean that he got to take a day off after a devastating personal and professional crisis. To Dr. Golfo, being a company executive meant doing what had to be done. I have a company full of people on the West Coast waiting to have a pre-launch meeting, waiting for me, waiting for me to tell them all that happened here. And what happened here isn't good. I have to get out there and I gotta, I gotta lead. I gotta go out there and lead. TV news never shows this next part of the lives of executives. Their raw humanity? But Dr. Golfo remembers this part, maybe more clearly and vividly than anything else. And I cried. I cried from Dulles to uh, whatever the name of the airport in San Diego is the whole time. I, uh, uh, I was just, I was, I can't explain what I was. I, I got to my hotel. Um, my hotel was on like the 13th or 14th floor and, and there were there was sliding doors and there were rails up, like four foot high rails. I just remember grabbing that rail and looking over the edge and like just saying to myself, it's a good thing there's rails here. Um, just, just, just a horrible, horrible feeling. The hotel was where the Urology Association was hosting its meeting and they were all the people who couldn't come to the trial. Dr. Golfo ran into a few of the urologists in the hall who had been helping him with the drug and told them what had happened. He was livid, and I told him what happened. He said, but so-and-so doesn't even treat this disease. He got angry. I told the second one, same reaction. I told the third one, same reaction. And then, instead of dwelling, he started doing. And the plan was this. These guys are surgeons. Urologists are surgeons. The last thing a surgeon wants is an internist telling them how to treat things. Okay? So what just happened? You had an internist, an oncologist, butting his nose in a surgical disease, superficial bladder cancer. So what I did was I was able to get 12 of the country's top urologic surgeons to go with me to the FDA. And again, Dr. Golfo had found his perfect number, 12. Dr. Golfo and his 12 urologists went to the FDA to meet with a senior administrator for what's called a supervisory review request to explain that it was wrong for oncologists to pass judgment on the disease treated by urologists, especially when the FDA prevented the urologists from even attending. The administrator agreed. And he sent Dr. Golfo and Anthra back to the very next panel meeting to restate their case for Valstar, something which was also brand spanking new in the history of the FDA. On September 1st, 1998, and without any new evidence, Valstar got a vote of 10 to 1, this time in favor. But it would turn out to be three months too late. By now, they'd become a pariah in the industry. 
What happened was the window of opportunity to raise money closed. So even though we got the approval, a nuclear winter emerged, I'm sorry, descended upon the public markets to raise money. So we were not able to raise money. So now the company with a product approved, okay, so we have a product approval and no money, what do we do? And, you know, there was a debate uh, at the board level, what should be done? And um, so uh, so the company basically fragmented and um, I left the company, I went on to something else. And then uh, the drug languished really. It would take more than three years for Valstar to get bought by another company and get into the hands of doctors and onto the bladders of patients. More than 14 years in all for Valstar. Those three lost years were vital for patients and Anthra. Tens of thousands of lives could have been saved. But because of the FDA's carelessness, after years of Anthra's carefulness, they weren't. Anthra itself died, taking with it 25 to $30 million in investments. Money that should have been turned into more money and allowed for reinvestment into more life-saving drugs. Dr. Mervin Israel had two other drugs he wanted to create and test, which would now be postponed for years as a result of Anthra's collapse. And the careers of nearly 30 people fell to pieces, despite the beautiful creation they had all forged. Dr. Golfo may have been the luckiest survivor of the Anthra debacle, as he became known as the man who would get things through the FDA. Dr. Golfo doesn't think it should be that way, though. Innovation shouldn't come down to one man. And it drives Dr. Golfo crazy. It's terrible. Well, it should come down to does the product work. It should not come down to whether the process works that it's not coming down to the product, it's coming down to many other things. What if you had someone who, who didn't prepare like as, as I did? It shouldn't depend on me, it should depend on the product. And it's getting down to where innovation is becoming a chance occurrence when it should be a rote occurrence. Dr. Golfo though would soon go back to the FDA and shepherd another company through the approval process, a story he would write a book about called Innovation Breakdown, how the FDA and Wall Street cripple medical advances. That story will bring you next. Reporting for Our American Stories, I'm John Woods. Wow. Great job, John, the whole team. Just superb work. And by the way, Dr. Golfo is now the executive director of the Lewis Center for Healthcare at my alma mater, Fairleigh Dickinson University, where I did my undergraduate work. And there he shares his experiences in the medical industry. This is Our American Stories. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Get this story. Get the link. Send it to friends.
Ali Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our Bring Small Businesses Back series, brought to us by the Job Creators Network. And today, we're talking to Heidi Gunal, founder and CEO of Camp Bow Wow, the largest pet care franchise center in North America. With about $90 million a year in business and more than 200 franchises in 40 states and Canada. Heidi, thanks for joining us. We, we interview a lot of job creators, and we like to start always at the beginning. Tell us about your childhood, where you were from, what the area was like, and a bit about your parents. Sure. Well, I grew up in Southern California in Orange County, uh, back when Irvine, California was just getting off and started. And my dad was a police officer there, and my mom worked for the rec center there, just in administration. And uh, I have a brother who's seven years younger. And at age 13, they moved us to Monument, Colorado, a little itty-bitty town by the Air Force Academy with about 3,000 people. And I, I think I cried for about a year. I was pretty <laughs> upset about that move. Yep. But it ended up being a great thing. And what led to that move? What, was your, what did your dad do? What, I mean, obviously your dad was in law enforcement, but what precipitated that move? And then talk about your first, if you could, your first bout with somebody who either taught you something about this idea called business ownership or what your first experience was that led you to the idea that you might want to be in business for yourself. Well, the two actually tie together. My dad was always very entrepreneurial, and on the side, he'd be doing a lot of things. He always had like a sales job on the side or was promoting a product. And so he moved us to Colorado to take a job in advertising sales. And just they just wanted to get us out of Southern California. I think my dad saw the writing on the wall with what was going on as a police officer and thought it would be better for us to live in a smaller town and in a, in a more rural area. So we moved here, and my dad ended up doing advertising sales, but eventually started his own business and had a couple different businesses and, and really kind of lit the fire in me around entrepreneurship, I think. Well, that's great. And, and, and that happens sometimes, and sometimes not. You know, we've learned from some that, you know, we heard, learned from Mark Cuban that how he learned to get into business for himself is he wanted some money for sneakers, and his dad threw him a case of garbage bags and said, sell these door to door. And, oh my gosh, I didn't know that. That's and, fantastic. And that was it. And from then he caught the bug. He thought, my goodness, I can make my own way. So Liz, uh, as a kid, we ask every single guest this because we do it for First Jobs Friday, which is a segment we do every Friday. What was your first job? What did you learn from it? And do you have your kids working as early as possible? Well, my first job was in Monument at working at the Dairy Queen, and I had to perfect the little twirl on the top of the cone. Oh, that's that was tough. My, it was tough, and, it, and they were pretty critical about it. So I, I got taught to take constructive criticism. Yep. But actually, I learned a lot about responsibility and showing up on time and, and keeping to your word, doing what you said you were going to do. And, and I moved up pretty quickly because of that. And, and that was honestly a little bit of a preview into my future working at a franchise and understanding just how the general operation worked. I think I started that job when I was 15. And, um, you know, I, I really I really enjoyed it because a lot of my friends worked there, but I also learned a lot about being responsible and, and doing what you needed to do to earn a living. Yeah, we also point out uh, that Gwen Stefani had her first bout of labor at, and her first gig at a Dairy Queen. So you're, ah. in, you're, you're, in, you're in legendary company. I like uh, that company. I'll take it. And by the way, I, for my money, the the, uh, the 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 hamburger at Dairy Queen is just fantastic, and the Dairy Queen milkshake is just a joy. 
And yeah. uh, so I just want to let you know, awesome. I'm a big time dairy. As you'll learn, we love every kind of what they call junk food in other places. We call joyful food uh, here on Our American <laughs> Stories. So I love that. You're, you're, I love that. Funny story from your first job. Worst, worst experience, best experience. What did you learn about customer interaction in that first job? <laughs> the, the thing I remember the most was when the big buses would pull in off the highway because we were right off I-25 and just... You know, 40 people would come barreling in, hungry and grumpy, and there would be three high school kids having to make all this food and serve them, and it was usually a disaster. We usually did not do a good job of handling those big crowds, but you really had to learn to just be humble and apologize a lot and do your best and and see if you couldn't work through it. Yeah, and just push it out and get through it and wait for the next explosion to happen, I guess. Yes, absolutely, and I, I remember one of our favorite stories was uh, when the Greg Kin Band, do you remember them? Oh, sure. They came in, and they brought their whole, like, tour bus in, and we were so starstruck. I don't even think we moved for, like, 30 seconds. We just stood at the register like, what do we do now? <laughs> they don't write them like that anymore, Greg Kin oh, Band. Yeah, no, no, I don't get me on music trivia. I can, but we, we'll go toe-to-toe for an hour, and we'll forget what we were talking about, Heidi. <laughs> So let me tell you, let me ask you this, the, uh, the education. We love to ask people where, you know, what they studied, or what connection it had to what they were doing, and where did you do most of your learning, uh, formal learning or the school, as we like to call, the school of hard knocks? Uh, I, I think I did a lot of the school of hard knocks, but I grew up in a family where my parents didn't go to college. They had us very young at 18 and 20, um, but they encouraged us um, to do all we could in the education space and go as far as we possibly could. They really recognized the value of education. So I went to SMU for my first year in Dallas on a scholarship and then was very homesick, so moved back to Colorado, graduated from CU Boulder, and then ended up getting my master's in healthcare administration from the University of Denver. But I'm always learning. I'm always taking classes and reading and listening to podcasts. And I just, I love to learn new ideas and listening to TED Talks. That's just kind of how I roll. Well, that's great. And, and that's the, I think everyone now knows that education is not static, that you've got to be a lifetime learner. And I think that what's about to happen in the education industry is explosive and online learning is going to take us in directions and fix problems that we don't even know are fixable um but that's i mean it goes from my husband being able to i mean he's not the handiest guy he's amazing at a lot of things but he's the first to get on youtube to solve any problem known to mankind and teach himself that way but then you read about like the khan academy that's teaching kids calculus that live in mongolia that would never be exposed to that because they can get online and take a course yep Hold that thought, Heidi, and when we come back, more from a small business owner, a job creator, an entrepreneur. That's what we do here in Our American Stories, and sometimes, yes, it includes the stories of those people who are out there creating jobs, those people trying to grow their businesses, grow their communities, and ultimately grow the economy. More with Heidi Ganahl after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're joined again by Heidi Ganahl, 
founder and CEO of Camp Bow Wow, the largest pet care franchise in North America, with more than 200 franchisees in 40 states and Canada. So you, you get out of college and you settle in on pharmaceutical sales. How did that work out for you? Uh, well, I liked it. It was a great job, but I called it the golden handcuffs. It was really, it was kind of boring. You did a lot of sample delivery to the doctors and then a lot of catering of lunches, all to get 30 seconds in front of a doctor. So I learned to get my message across really quickly, but I, it didn't really fill up my soul. It wasn't what I loved doing, and I was married at the time to buy in my first husband, who was also very entrepreneurial, and we were always thinking up these business ideas. And we had two big fluffy dogs that we couldn't find a place that was good enough to take them. And about that same time, one of the first doggy daycares opened up next to my dad's business, and we fell in love with that concept, so we wrote a business plan for it. You know, I want to talk about your first husband. Just take a detour here. Um, tell us the story of, of, his, of his tragic uh, end of his life. Um, it, it had to be a terrible time for you, Heidi, but, but share that with the audience if you could. Yeah, Bayan was fantastic. He was such a great guy, and he was just one of those people that lit up a room and had such a great soul and and spirit to him. Um, But we were together for about four years, married for a couple years, and for his 25th birthday, our family, um, my dad ran into an old family friend who was a United Airlines pilot, and he did air shows with an old 43 Stearman. He was super excited about it, invited my dad to come down to the airport for a ride and suggested if any of us wanted to go, he'd take us as well. And my dad thought it would be a great um, thing for Brian to do, and we all agreed. We thought, oh, my gosh, he loves doing extreme skiing and all this, you know, very adventurous stuff. So we surprised him with the birthday gift to go up in the plane. And they did all the stunts and did a flyby over my folks. I, didn't, I wasn't there. I had another event going on, and the plane crashed into the ground, and both Cliff and Brian were killed instantly right in front of my folks. Oh, my goodness. And it was terrible. And so, I, you know, we have in our notes, Heidi, that for a while you were just, and I can't imagine how you wouldn't be, but you were lost. And, uh, and, so lost. And, so, yeah. yeah. And, and I was a mess. You were a mess, but there were these two dogs, Mick and Winnie. <laughs> That's they, right. They prodded you along. And talk about that and talk about next steps and you going into this next phase of your life. Well, the next few years were a mess, and I made some bad decisions with the settlement money I got from the plane crash. I remarried and quickly divorced, but I got a wonderful daughter out of it, Tori, who brought me back to life along with my pups. And about five years after the crash, my little brother comes to me, and I'm back in pharmaceutical sales. I'm a single mom now, and he's like, come on, you have so much spirit in you and and drive. Let's get the old business plan from Camp Bow Wow and see if we can't get it going. And I was like, really? I'm going to waste, I had $80,000 left from the settlement out of a million dollars. And I was like, I I don't know that that's the best idea (laughs) to waste that money on a doggy daycare. He's like, I I don't want to hear it. We're going to do it. And so we did. And it just took off. And talk about that first, you know, that first step, you know, because I think that people listening, you, you just shared something that almost every person thinking about going into business worries about. And that is that so many businesses fail. And my goodness, I heard a statistic about the restaurant business that was overwhelming, like 90 percent of them fail within five years. And I just go, oh, my goodness, that, that's terrifying. And yet, you know, where would we be without great restaurant entrepreneurs? And they, they do it and they survive. You started with a million dollars. You were down to 83000 and 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 yet you, would like, you had to have learned enough from some of those mistakes to carry you through with your first Camp Bow Wow. Because that first one had to be the toughest, right, Heidi? 
It was. And, and I think the lesson I learned from everything I went through before I opened it was you only live once and your life is very short and you have to make the most of it. And, you know, you, you can't spend your life wondering what if. And so I took a big risk and I did it. But the difference was I was so passionate about this idea. I just knew it would work. And that's what I tell people. When you have an idea that you're not afraid of, that you don't feel a lot of fear, of course you're going to feel some fear about starting a business then just roll with it and keep pushing on doors and seeing if they open and when they don't, move on to the next one. But if there's an idea that you're super passionate about and it just fills up your heart, then roll with it. You've got to at least try it. Yep. And this was your first space was 2,500 square feet in an old Veterans of Foreign Wars building. It had a drive-up <laughs> drop-off and a pickup for dogs, but you were the first pet care in center in the country with a streaming video feed so people can watch their dogs. My goodness, I got to tell you, that makes, I mean, the, the, the little place, there's not a Camp Bow Wow in our little town, but the little place where we have our dogs, it makes my wife so comfortable to know she can watch our dogs. Yeah, that was my brother's brainchild. And, and the funny thing, video streaming back in 2000, yeah. was uh, it would take a picture every 60 seconds and post to the Internet. <laughs> right. and it would be this blur of fur, and you couldn't <laughs> see any of the dogs. But people loved it. And now it's hi-fi, video, high-definition streaming, 16 you know cameras in a camp. You can pull it up on your smartphone. It's very cool. So now you have the first successful Camp Bow Wow. What leads you to this thing called franchising? And before we even talk about that, just so I can share with the, 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 the folks who are listening to Our American Stories, franchising is a legal concept and a business concept. And about one in five businesses in America are franchises. And that's everything from hotels to auto care specialties to maid services. You name it. Uh, the industry is 20% of the GDP. But what led you to this space, Heidi? Well, it wasn't intentional. Um, I had I had opened my second location, and one of my uh, customers worked for Mrs. Fields Cookies, and he was like, "You know, Heidi, I've done a little bit of research, and there is nobody franchising a kennel or a dog daycare. Back then, doggy daycare wasn't anything like it is now." And I thought, ah, "All right, I don't know anything about it." But we went to the International Franchise Association conference. I met some great people who agreed to mentor me. We went back to Colorado, put together the legal paperwork, put a sign up on each of the counters, and sold our first franchise within a couple weeks. Amazing. And, you know, it goes to something I think that's important. You, when you're analyzing your own skill sets, what you saw yourself at was more more of that person with a vision, more of that person with the marketing skills. But if you would have not gone the franchise route and you would have tried to own and operate each place... You would have had to got, gotten into the muck and the mire of individual hires, operation and management of all kinds of employees. And people don't know this about a lot of corporate franchisors. They aren't the ones that, that own these businesses. It's the franchisees that own the decisions. They don't do the marketing, Heidi. But my goodness, they are responsible for the day-to-day business decisions, the hiring, the management. So in a way, this was actually the perfect business structure and legal formation for your particular talents. It absolutely was. I, I tell people the franchise model was such a gift to me because I am so visionary and strategic, and, and you know I don't enjoy as much being in the day-to-day operations, and I didn't have a lot of capital to grow the brand. And 
I, but I had a lot of people that wanted to open one of these businesses. Once I got open, they would call me constantly. How do I do this? How do I get one of these places open? This is my dream. I want to hang out with dogs all day and make a living at it. So the beauty of it is you get to help so many other people do what they love and start their own business and make a living doing what you know makes them happy. I think it's what makes franchising so powerful in the end, Heidi. Not enough people can do the marketing. But and the branding, but what they can do is run the organization, and they have skin in the game because they're putting up the capital, and they oh, want right. to return. They want to return on their investment, and you do too. And so it, it it gets incentives lined up in really interesting places. I wanted to talk to you about the National Labor Relations Board, and that's yeah. called the NLRB, and they recently handed down what are being called joint employer rulings. Talk about what this means to a small business owner. And obviously, you're not the franchisee. You're the franchisor. But what does this mean to you, the franchisor? And what does it mean to all those individual owners of each Camp Bow Wow around this country? And there are 200 of them. Well, I'm extremely worried about my franchisees, but also the franchise industry in general. I mean, you go from having very... um, very open-ended operational expertise on the, on the franchisee side. So they get to run their businesses how they be best be fit. And, you know, we provide a template for the brand and kind of guide the overall messaging and strategy. But the day-to-day is on the franchisee. And if all of a sudden you've got a franchisor that's liable for all the day-to-day operations of the franchisee and the employment hiring and firing decisions, that makes it extremely hard to have the franchise model work the way it does because the amount of royalties we collect are very, very small in the big picture. Not enough to hire a complete staff of HR folks to manage 3,500 people in the Camp Bow Wow system, right. whereas at corporate we typically have you know 50 to 60 people on staff. Yep. And there you have it, folks. You're hearing it plain and simple. These businesses work on thin margins. And they can't afford the compliance costs and all the government regulations. Heidi, hold that thought when we come back more from a real-life job creator. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now we return to our conversation with Heidi Ganahl, founder and CEO of Camp Bow Wow. What is the NLRB up to, do you think, Heidi, doing this? Why are they doing it? I mean, I can see I'm a lawyer by training, and I can see that, well, my goodness, it's easier and more fun if you're a trial lawyer to sue the corporate parent than it is the the individual store for the negligence of an individual owner. It's spreading the risk up to what I call a deeper pocket. 
Uh, but what else do you think might be the reasons? Because I'm banging up in my head going, these are contracts. You have an actual existing contract between the franchisor and the franchisee. And the NLRB with this ruling would basically be rewriting that contract, Heidi. That's right. That's right. And you nailed it on the, the overall intent of it. So I think the trial lawyers are going to love this ruling. But the other thing that's going to happen is franchisors are not going to sell franchises, franchise units to the individual mom-and-pop folks out there. They're only going to work with the big like the big operators that own like 100 Arby's or 100 you know, McDonald's that can handle the capacity of legal work and financial background that's going on behind the scenes. And, and what I think is going on is I think that the unions are trying to get involved in the restaurant industry and unionize those units because, that, I mean, most of the restaurants in the United States are franchises, and that's the way they do it. Yep, they get in that way. And by the way, who gets hurt the most in this, Heidi, is – this, the franchising is the single greatest way for poor people, minorities, for, for women to run their own and own their own businesses. And now because of a ruling like this, goodbye. If you're a big guy, you can survive because you can deal with the compliance. You can deal with fighting off the trial lawyers. But if you're a little guy, no one's going to want to take the risk. The, the franchisor particularly is not going to take the risk. So Yeah, it breaks my heart. Yeah. I mean, the, I love small business and entrepreneurship. And I believe that's the key to keeping the American dream alive, keeping the economy going. And they're just, it, you're realigning the incentives. And there isn't an incentive for franchisors to sell individual franchises. And the individual folks that buy franchises that have these opportunities to do what they love and make a living at it, the risk is too great then, the expense is too high and the regulation is too great to make it work. Yep. And tell us a bit about, before we go to our rapid fire, because we have some fun rapid fire questions for all of our guests, Heidi, and you're not mm-hmm. allowed to think too much about them. You just sort of have to answer. Um, but I know she's going, uh-oh, you'll love it. But Job Creators Network, you're, you're, you're a part of this organization. Tell us what it means for you, why you've joined it, and what you're trying to do. Well, I'm trying to defend small business, and I just, it, it, like I said, it hurts my heart that there's such an attack going on on, on entrepreneurship and starting small business in America when uh, small businesses employ most people in this country, and it also gives most people the opportunity to start a business, uh, support their family, do what they love, and build wealth and a, and a legacy for their own family over time. And so I've got to put my hand up and, and say, I was blessed to live the American dream, and I was able to start a business doing something totally out of the box that I loved doing and make a living at it and help 200 other franchisees do the same thing. And it's being destroyed right now. So if I don't put my hand up and fight for it, who's going to? And I have four kids that I want to be able to have the same opportunities that I did. So I I just feel very passionate about fighting for that American dream. You know, and Heidi, one of the things we've been doing here in Our American Stories is, you know, the average American listening to this, and we do stories about everything, and we're going to be doing Frank Sinatra's life for an hour after we're done here. Ah. And uh, it's a beautiful story about a man who grows up in Hoboken, New Jersey, looks across that river and sees New York City as some far off place. And yet he ends up singing New York, New York, 
and singing it in such an affirmative way that he says, you know, I'm not just that kid from Hoboken. I'm that kid from New York, and I made it there, and I can make it anywhere. And it, it's such an aspirational notion, uh, what that song is comprised of. It's just spectacular, and it's beautiful, and it's everything that's great about America. We talk about Dodd-Frank, and we've talked about it quite a bit, but how it impacts small bankers. We've been t- interviewing small bankers, many of whom, Heidi, will not give their last names and don't want to go on air because they're afraid of their regulators. And what they've told us again and again is the small community bank is getting killed. It can't afford the compliance costs. And because it's getting killed, the very people who are best at loaning money to small businesses, the very people who might get their first Camp Bow Wow franchise, are also being hurt. Talk about how access to credit has really been affected uh, by Dodd-Frank and on small business owners in particular, Heidi. Well, we've seen since uh, Dodd-Frank came into play, it's just incredibly difficult for our franchisees to get financing now. And before, it wasn't easy, but it was, you know, a lot more feasible. And it's very, very discouraging because there are so many passionate people that just need a little help, a little push financially, and they can make it happen and build an incredible business off of one of our franchises and, you know, take care of a lot of doggies and a lot of employees to create a lot of jobs. And so it's, it's so disheartening that the, they're trying so hard to protect people, but people don't want to be protected. They're willing to take risks in order to create jobs and to create uh, wealth for their family. And if the good old government would get out of the way, we would have a lot more of that going on. Yeah, it's so true. Let's, uh, let's talk about some of the things we ask all of our guests. A teacher that stands out in your mind, Heidi. Oh, goodness, there were so many, but um, I think a professor at college, um, Professor Limberopoulos, he was a finance teacher, and I've never been a big numbers person. I mean, I can certainly read financial reports and, and get by, but he, he helped me kind of fall in love with the numbers and understand how important data analysis was to running a business or doing anything in life. And I think that's become a big part of who I am, which is counterintuitive to how I thought my marketing branding brain was going to work. But it's all about metrics now and data and making decisions around data. Tell us about a hobby or a passion or a quirk of Heidi Ganals that no one or no one would typically associate with you. Yeah, that's a good one. Let's see. Um, uh, let's see. Gosh, that's hard. I grew up loving soccer and playing soccer, and that's how I got my scholarship to SMU was our family brought AYSO to Colorado, so the first soccer team when we were kids, and built it into a big program here. That's great. Mentor, uh, a particular mentor in your life who's meant the, the world to you. Well, I have to say, I've, I've gotten to know Carly Fiorina pretty well, and I worked on her campaign as the lead in Colorado, and she is just an incredible person and, and just inspired me to be able to do whatever I wanted to do, like my parents did a long time ago, but in a different context. I think she's fantastic. You know, Heidi, I saw her give a talk at a, at a private function. It wasn't, it wasn't a deep political talk. It was much more about family and marriage in particular. She was talking about the importance of marriage to a a group of uh, mostly Christian folks, but people who are really concerned about marriage. And I was listening to her talk about being a secretary at at, at HP and who came up beside her and who helped her and how she remembered those people and then all the people who were always rooting against her. And I was watching particularly the waiting staff. I was watching, I always like watching, you know, ordinary folks, not the, 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 the executives who are listening to her story, but ordinary folks, kids, you know, young people in their 20s, bartending and putting themselves through night school. And I'm, they were riveted 
Heidi, riveted by her story. And they were African-Americans, they were Hispanic, and it was just beautiful watching her story inspire, truly inspire that staff. That's how she is. When you're around her, you feel inspired, and you feel like you've got so much potential inside, and she just wants to take a key and unlock it. And that's, I think, what her passion was about running for office and trying to kind of get back America back to that. Your favorite breed of dog? Ah, Labrador Retriever, who's sitting at my feet right now. <laughs> there you go. And cat, your favorite cat. I love Siamese cats. I grew up on That Darn Cat, that movie. I don't know if you remember oh, that. Oh, yeah. Who, uh, who are easier to deal with as customers, cat people or dog people? <laughs> oh, Lordy, that's a tough one. I'm going to have to say cat people because they're a little bit more particular. Not that dog folks aren't, but when it comes to the specific care of their animals, I think. The Stones or the Beatles? The Beatles. There you go. And last but not least, Heidi, the worst date you ever had? Oh, my goodness. Um, probably it would have to go to a guy that I really liked, and we went out on a couple dates, and I found out he did not like dogs, and that was the oh, end Oh, that's it. the end. That's the end. <laughs> Oops. Uh, and it's good to not tell him ahead of time that you love dogs, too, because it's always good to find out the truth, because you know on dates people will say anything to keep the date going. So that's Boy, good. that's the truth. <laughs> that's the truth. Well, Heidi, thanks so much for taking the time with us. Thanks for sharing your story and even some of these quirky things as well. It was great having you uh, on the show, and we look forward to talking to you in the future. Thanks, Lee. Have a great day. You bet. Thank you, Heidi. And this is Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. If you're looking for news, oh, you got the wrong station. And if you're looking for hot talk or some screaming and yelling, wrong again. Uh, We do stories and only stories here, stuff you can use, stuff you care about, the arts, entertainment, health, the law, and housing, the stuff that affects your lives and organized in that way. And we love to highlight the topics that left by the wayside when so much of our media treats politics as the first and only concern of most Americans. And again, one of the most important topics in our lives is housing, how accessible it is, how affordable it is, how stable it is. Today we're joined by Cassandra Bajak and Austin Berg to take a deeper and an all-too-personal look at how property taxes are pressuring Americans to leave their homes. I know this. I wrote a piece in the National Review about how my own dad, who had paid $32,000 for a home in 1961, could have never imagined that his property tax bill would be $15,000 for one year. And that was 40 years later. And Cassandra is a homeowner from a suburb of Chicago. Austin is from the Illinois Policy Institute, the state's premier think tank. Cassandra and Austin, thanks for being here. Thanks, Lee. Happy to. You bet. Let's start with you, Cassandra. Let's start with just your story. And uh, Austin, you'll come in uh, on, the, on the policy level in a bit, if you don't mind. You and your family, uh, Cassandra, live in Crystal Lake, Illinois, where the slogan is, a good place to live. Set the scene for us, if you could. Well, it is a great place to live, and when my husband and I decided to move here from Elgin 13 years ago, we did look for a better community, better schools, um, you know, good neighborhood and nice little downtown area, and we built our house 13 years ago. Unfortunately, we didn't expect our taxes to double. We knew there would be an increase because of the better amenities and, you know, 
local city and, you know, suburb schools and everything like that. We love that. But unfortunately, our taxes have doubled and are pretty prohibitive at this point. And your your husband was an Army vet. You have two kids. And you work in, of all things, the mortgage industry. But what you discovered is, well, at a certain point in time, from the day you became a homeowner to today, the property tax bill ultimately started to catch up with the mortgage bill. Talk about that. Well, it not only caught up, it exceeded it. And we're seeing that happen all over um, Cook County, McHenry County, Lake County, everywhere in the suburbs of Chicago, including the city. But um, usually the tax base, when we do new construction or, you know, evaluate taxes is about 2%. We're well above that. And Austin can give you the details on that. But we're at least double that factor since the values haven't really changed. The taxes have doubled and we're trying to figure out what's increased, what's gotten better for us. And it's status quo, basically, but it just hasn't, we haven't seen a phenomenal improvement or anything from what we came here from 13 years ago. You bet. And uh, Austin, you know, just uh, about my dad, he bought the house in 1961, and his uh, personal property taxes at the time were a little over $200. And that skyrocketed to almost 15000 and he had paid the house off decades before. And so here's a case where... The, the, the property taxes were many, many times fold over his highest mortgage payment. Where does this money go, Austin? What, what, what's happening with property taxes? Give us a, a, a look from, the down, from top, down top and the policy level in Illinois. But this is New Jersey. This is a lot of states, isn't it, Austin? Yeah, that's the sad part about stories like Cassandra's is that they're increasingly becoming the norm uh, in Illinois. So Illinois is one of the highest property taxing states in the country, and we come in about number two or number three every year. And after Chicago phases in its record-setting property tax increase over the next couple of years, we're the odds-on favor to take uh, the top spot. So what does that mean in practice? Well, the average property tax bill, take uh, McHenry County, where Cassandra lives. That comes out to $800 a month, average. So can you imagine just being you know, a real estate agent in a middle-class area trying to sell that tax liability no. to new people coming into your neighborhood? I mean, these are, these are good schools. They're, they're pretty good schools. Uh, but you could pay for a top-tier private school pretty much anywhere else in the country uh, with the type of money people are spending here on property taxes. Yeah. So this is why you're seeing you know, record-breaking out-migration from Illinois over the past few years, because who would want to stick around and pay that bill? It's just fundamentally unfair. Yep. And Austin, do, do, do people ask the question now? I would think that they're getting increasingly wise. They must want to ask the question, where were taxes four years ago? Where are they now? Because then they can actually do a little graph. 800 today, maybe 1600 eight years from now. And by the way, when I retire and I've paid this thing off, wow, keep putting that line up. And maybe I've just paid off a home I can't afford anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're basically paying a mortgage you can never pay off and you're renting your home from the government and the government is not a very good landlord. So you see well, since, since 1990, you see uh, in Illinois, you see property tax revenues have gone up three and a half times the median household income. So people are just getting squeezed left and right. Three and a half times the median household income. Incomes have been stagnant. Housing values have been stagnant or declined and property taxes get higher and higher and higher every year. Amazing. Cassandra, uh, now we, we've heard your dilemma. What are you doing? I mean, what are you, are you considering a move? What, what are you going to do? Well, we, we really have to, unfortunately. Now, my children were born and raised in this house. We 
wanted to stay in Crystal Lake forever. You know, it's a good location for our jobs and everything like that. And uh, we've appealed several times and to really no good results as far as that's concerned. They ended up changing the factors on us where our property value now seems accurate, but the factors are, have gone up. So we're stuck between a rock and a hard place. So downsizing either here in Illinois to keep our children in school with their friends or moving out of state, which is a very um, possible option for us as well. We're, we're really in a crunch right now. We're trying to decide that. Well, and it's interesting, and Austin, I'm wondering if you could weigh in here. One of the things we love to cover here on this show is where are people moving from and where are they moving to? And we just follow the annual Atlas Van Line Survey, which I think is the most fascinating policy uh, look at this space than anything almost any think tank could provide because, well, generally many folks not might not care about you know public policy the way we put it out at think tanks. But man, Atlas Van Lines doesn't have a dog in the fight. Um, they're just, well, it's just sort of an interesting tidbit. Talk about where people are moving from and to and why. Sure. So you can look at uh, moving company studies. You can look at IRS data. You can look at census data. All of those studies point to Illinois residents leaving for Texas, leaving for Florida, leaving for Arizona, leaving for Indiana just lower tax states where you can get a lot more house for your money. And when you look at the survey data, the two number one reasons for uh, for moving, long-distance moves, this is according to census data, is, I mean, this is common sense stuff, but it's economic reasons, so jobs, and number two is housing. So if you're in a state like Illinois where the jobs climate is among the worst in the nation, the taxes, uh, the property taxes are among the highest in the nation, wages are stagnant, why wouldn't you move uh, to a booming state where taxes are reasonable? You're not seeing out-of-control pension and health care costs for government workers. You're not seeing crazy workers' compensation costs that are hitting uh, cash-strapped local governments. Yep. Uh, you're not seeing these crazy prevailing wage requirements you see in Illinois. It's a no-brainer for a lot of families. You know, in Austin, what we're not considering, we did a, we did a, a segment on the Mercedes-Benz uh, uh, corporate offices in Montvale, New Jersey, moving to Sandy Springs, Georgia. And they said one of the big reasons was that the costs of housing were absorbed by them in payroll. So the businesses have to pay the cost if they want to keep their people put. And then they got to pass those costs along to somebody else. Talk about the impact of these higher taxes on, on businesses themselves, Austin. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been uh, doing a lot of work on manufacturing across the state. And when you talk to manufacturers, I just talked to one uh, in South Cook County, and he's moving his 500 jobs. It's a it's called Hoist Lift Truck. They make forklifts. They'll be moving their business, uh, which gives about 500 jobs, great, I think, average salary in the $60,000, $70,000 range, moving them just a matter of miles to Indiana. And when I was talking to their CEO, Marty Flaska, he was saying, I thought this would be a tough sell to my employees but when I tell them what they're going to pay for housing versus what they're paying in Cook County, when I tell them what they're going to pay in, say, sales tax just for stuff, for, for diapers, for food, for anything, uh, for any type of service or good, uh, they're going to get it cheaper. Their quality of life is going to skyrocket. My bottom line uh, will be benefited by getting out of this tax structure. It, it's a win-win for everybody. Well, it is. And what I'd love to do is follow up with you, Cassandra. If you do move, I want to find out where you've moved to. I want to find out what your life's like. We want to do one of those WPA-like 
long-form stories where we follow people around from where they've moved from and to and let the American public know this is going on not just in your life, because I know so many people are feeling this. It's happening in Cassandra's life and guys like Austin Berg at the Illinois Policy Institute. Well, they're keeping track of it all. Thanks so much for both of you joining us today. Thanks, Lee. You bet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, and these are the kind of stories I know you care about. And by the way, folks, if your property taxes aren't out of control, get to those school board meetings. Petition your state legislature. When they say it's only a 1% or a 2% increase, say no. Say no, because 2% every year times 20 years, and the next thing you know, your state's Illinois, too. This is Lee Habib. Again, this is Our American Stories. You can catch all of our material at ouramericannetwork.org.